Well, I am reading, these were the uh, propers for tomorrow, the second Sunday after the Epiphany. So if you come to church tomorrow, you will hear these same readings and you'll get a different take on on them. Uh, So I'm going to give you mine. I shared an article with your senior warden this past week and its title was Grim. And uh, the, the contents of that article lived up to the title. It was called After COVID, The Deepening Decline of the Church of England. The article makes two points. The first is that since the turn of the millennium, attendance in the Church of England is down 50%. In 2000, the average Sunday attendance was 950,000 on a a Sunday. And in 2022, the attendance was only 549,000. The article does not try to account for the pandemic years as the data from those years is 2020 and 2021 is pretty much unusable, unusable. The article speculates that those who stopped attending during the pandemic, if they haven't come back yet, are not likely to. The second point the article makes is that children no longer attend church. Sunday attendance for children in England, in the Church of England, is down 23% since 2019. And the article concludes that COVID aged the church statistically, with 36% of the Church of England now being over the age of 70, while only 13.5% of the population of England is over 70. So, and the same story is true for the Episcopal Church as well. Uh, This article came out this past week, so it's fresh in my mind, but I've read articles like this over the past year and a half, the data from our diocese and our denomination. So you might be expecting me to preach right now about a new program for growing the church, particularly our congregation, and maybe you're eagerly awaiting for me to produce the silver bullet that will save you and us. But instead, I'm going to preach the gospel for the second Sunday after the Epiphany. Today's reading is from John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. Now, the whole first chapter of the gospel of John covers three days in Jesus' early ministry. If you go back and you look at it, John covers a lot of ground uh, in his his entire gospel. The first, first first chapter is particularly compressed. It covers the first three days of Jesus' public ministry. On on the first day, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's pretty much everything you need to know about the significance of the life and work of Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. But I suspect that if you were to go out to uh, your friends and neighbors at this point and say Jesus is the Lamb of God, they would give you a dumb look. That that phrase, what what those words mean are meaningless to the modern ear. Lamb of God, sin, taking away. But two of John the Baptist's disciples know exactly or knew exactly what it meant because the next day, on day two of the three first days, John again says, this time within earshot of two of his own disciples, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, John, the, the writer of the gospel, tells us the, the name of one of these disciples. One of the disciples mentioned here is Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother. And we can assume from authorial modesty that the other disciple is John, the gospel writer himself. And then Andrew and John go to Andrew's, Andrew and John go to Andrew's brother, who is Simon Peter, and they tell him, we have found the Messiah. So now John the evangelist is beginning to unravel the mystery behind John the Baptist's declaration, behold, the Lamb of God. We now know that the Lamb of God is the Messiah. Now, a generation ago, you might have been able to say the Messiah, and people would have thought you were talking about Handel's great composition. I'm not sure anyone would know even what the Messiah is today. By the end of day two, Jesus has three disciples of his own. 
He has Andrew, John, and Peter. And so finally, we are ready to explore today's reading, which begins on day three of Jesus' public ministry. In today's gospel, we read, The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. So far, on days one and day two, the church has grown in only one way, by prophetic declaration. And you recall, I talked about at the beginning of this sermon about the church's decline. Here we're talking about the church's growth. John the Baptist was a prophet, and he preached an infallible word. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John didn't offer any debate. He didn't offer any reasoned discourse, no explanation. John actually didn't try to explain what he meant. He simply declared the truth of who Jesus is. We know that John had many other disciples, yet only two leave him at this point to follow Jesus. They do so because they at once believe on John's prophetic authority that Jesus is the Messiah. Andrew repeats the infallible prophetic declaration to Peter, saying, We have found the Messiah. So, here's the silver bullet. If the church wants to grow, the proven formula is to proclaim the words that grow the church. Behold, the Lamb of God. We have found the Messiah. Now on day three, we are told about two other ways that the church grows. The second way the church grows is by a direct command of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. John chapter one, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee after he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Many people join the church in response to Jesus' personal instruction to them. Do you not think that Jesus is speaking to each and every one of us all of the time? And not just those of us sitting here in a church, to the whole world? Is he not speaking all the time? The way in which Jesus makes himself heard in our lives is as varied as our lives themselves. But make no mistake, when Jesus wants to be heard in our lives, he will make himself heard. Many times, perhaps most of the time, this kind of direct command comes to unbelievers, to those who never go to church, to those who think of themselves as secular, agnostic, atheistic, atheist, or spiritual. And Jesus is talking to them. And Jesus says to them, follow me. Often they will hear Jesus instruct them as they reach once again for the bottle or scroll habitually through that pornographic feed or return to that sinful embrace. Follow me is also the test of whether or not a church is true or apostate. Newcomers will come to a local church because they expect innocently enough that because we call ourselves a church that here they can find Jesus. But too many churches fail to preach the prophetic word that compels belief. Behold the Lamb of God. We have found the Messiah. And so when these newcomers come, if they don't find Jesus, they will leave and keep looking until they find him in a church that does know him. Because after all, Jesus himself has instructed them to follow me. The third way the church grows is by invitation. This third way has two parts to it. The first part is witness. The second is invitation. Picking up at John chapter 1, verse 45, after Philip is converted, 
we read about the witness part. Philip, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, another word for witness is testimony. And as Christians, each of us has a testimony to give about Jesus. I've just read Philip's to you. Philip is speaking on behalf of all the apostles so far. Remember, there's only three at this point. When he says, we have found him. Here at the very beginning of the church, the church is united. The church is united in her witness. This is a precious moment before any divisions or separations. All three members of the church agree that they have found the Messiah. Here's another way to test for, an, for a faithful or an apostate church. Is that church united in its witness? This specifically is that church united in what it says about who Jesus is. Now, there's something very important to point out here first before you apply this test. It's about the nature of Philip's testimony about Jesus. What is Philip's testimony about Jesus? It's, it's biblical. Philip appeals to the Bible. Jesus is the Messiah because Moses and the prophets wrote about Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah not because he fulfills some popular ideas about the cosmic Christ or because he heals the sick. He hasn't healed anyone yet. Jesus is the Messiah because he embodies what was said about him in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses and the prophets. So a church very well could be united in its testimony about who Jesus is if they think that Jesus is some pink-haired donkey, but then that church would be apostate because the Bible says no such thing. But if a church is united in its testimony that Jesus is the Messiah, because that is what the Bible says, then that church is faithful. After biblical witness comes invitation. Nathaniel responds skeptically at verse 46. He asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says to him, come and see. Now, Nathaniel doesn't mean any disrespect here to Nazareth. It's a funny line. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But it's not a disrespectful line because Nathaniel knows his Bible and he knows that Moses and the prophets never once, never once mentioned a town called Nazareth and certainly not in connection with the Messiah. And so what, what Nathaniel is doing is, is something every member or every prospective member of the church needs to do. He is, he's testing the testimony of the preacher and the other members of the congregation by the word of God. Don't believe what I say because I'm standing up here saying it. Check it. Check it against the word of God. There's a reason Protestant churches put a Bible in the pews. It's your book. You'll know if your preacher is lying to you, if what he is telling you isn't in the good book. Now, you may want to hear those lies, but that's not why he's here. Nathaniel's objection is the reason we put so much emphasis on Bethlehem during Christmas and Epiphany, because Bethlehem is where the prophets said the Messiah would be born. But Philip doesn't respond with a proof from Scripture. He responds with an invitation to come and see. And so here's a final test for sorting out the faithful from the apostate churches. When the newcomers come and see, come to see, what do they see? Because they don't come looking for an argument. They won't be persuaded by a proof text. They will only stay if they find Jesus. And Jesus won't lie to them. 
We read about the strange first meeting between Nathanael and Jesus in verses 48 and 49. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, don't make the mistake here that, you know, uh, Philip is standing where my wife is and Nathanael is, is sitting over there next to Doug. And Jesus just glances over and sees him. This is a mystical sight. Because the response, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel is not the response you would give if Jesus just caught someone out of the corner of the eye. The encounter under the fig tree depicts the mystical call of Christ to each and every one of us. And as it surely happened to Nathaniel, it happens to us too. Christ sees us before we see him. Christ sees us in our honest and searching moments. He sees us in our sinful and shameful moments too. Moments that you and I are too polite to look at. There is, some, there is certainly something about the shade of a tree that is conducive to contemplation. Teachers of Israel often taught under the shade of fig trees. It's a natural place to gather or to be alone. I remember the peace and comfort of sitting under a tall elm tree in New Haven many summers long ago. Often I sat under that tree reading my Bible. Sometimes I sat there reading my Bible with my friends. Other times I was just taking a nap. Reading the Bible is one way, perhaps the best way, We can open ourselves up to hearing Jesus' instructions. They are all right there, after all, in black and white. Jesus will certainly speak his words of instructions to us when we are in the middle of committing one sin or another. But how much better will our meeting with Jesus go? How much less judgmental and how much more affirming will it be if he's seen us under the tree, like Nathaniel opening our hearts to him, trying to understand his word? That's a point maybe I'll go off script for a second and just say in the moments that we shared before this sermon when we were meeting together, were were we not worried about being judgmental? Yes, we were worried about being judgmental. But remember that meeting that comes with Jesus, because we either face him as a judge or as our savior. If we want that meeting to go well, if we don't want it to be a meeting of judgment, if we want to hear the affirmation, servant, well done, we need to understand what he says in his word, and we need to pledge ourselves to living by it. Now, Nathaniel was a sinner just like we all are, but Jesus had a special word for him. Jesus says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Now, Nathaniel must have already done a good deal of the work that it takes to, say, to see Jesus. When the invitation came from Philip to come and see, Nathaniel was ready because he had prepared to see Jesus. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged by news of the church's decline. Jesus has a cure for the church's decline. The cure lies in the hearts of the many Nathaniels, the world over, who are open to and yearning for Jesus to visit them. Every church needs to understand this. We don't grow the church. Me preaching won't grow the church. You inviting your friends and putting up signs, hanging out at the fair, handing out pamphlets, doing outreach, that doesn't grow the church. 
Jesus grows the church, which is why the church never stops growing. This is what Jesus means in Matthew's gospel at chapter 9, verse 37 and 38, when he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The church that knows Jesus will labor in this harvest. The church that doesn't know Jesus will be judged. Paul's warning in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, was not just to individuals who wouldn't work, but to entire congregations as well. Paul writes, if anyone will not work, let him not eat. Nathaniel adds two declarations to the two we have already heard from John the Baptist, Andrew, John, and Philip. John the Baptist told us, behold the Lamb of God. Philip says, Andrew and John say, we have found the Messiah. And to, and to these, Nathaniel adds, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So now we have four proven words that we know grow the church. The Lamb of God links Jesus to all the sacrifices Israel made on its altars throughout history. It also foreshadows Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. The Messiah is the one who will come to redeem and restore Israel's status among the nations. And the disciples declare that Jesus is this Messiah. The Son of God can be none other than God himself. Jesus is God, and there is only one God. Nathaniel speaks this truth before anyone else. You see, we, we, we hit that truth this morning, didn't we? And Nathaniel was the first to speak it. Jesus is God. Anything less than that is your own imagination. King of Israel means that Jesus commands not just spiritual but temporal power. He is a king. He is a head of state. He is a ruler. He is a judge. We hit this this morning too, didn't we? There's a political element to Jesus. His His rule over this world is real. It's just like any other king or president or governors. But both Paul and John later declare Jesus to be supreme over them all, to be the king of kings and the lord of lords. And so while I wouldn't be political bluntly in this pulpit to say that there is no politics in our faith would be to deny Jesus his lordship and his kingship. Because of all this, Jesus is the end of politics, the end of ethnic strife, the end of war, and even the end of history. In this way, he is truly the prince of peace. All this is what I think Jesus had in mind when he said to Nathaniel, you shall see greater things than these. But Jesus had something else in mind too. And so I close with a final point about what the church does when she assembles in individual congregations. Jesus says, you shall see greater things than these. Greater things than me knowing who you are without even me seeing you. You're going to see greater things than these. And he immediately adds, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And that's a reference to Jacob's ladder, Jacob's dream of angels ascending and descending, which is found in Genesis chapter 28. This was a dream Jacob had while spending the night at a place he later called Bethel, which means in Hebrew, the house of God. Every church is a Bethel. I'm standing at Bethel right now. I'm standing in the place where angels ascend and descend. And so when we gather in this church, we go to Bethlehem. When we gather in this church, we go to Calvary. We memorialize here what happened there. And that's why it's fitting to decorate and beautify our churches. That's why it is fitting to use worthy musical instruments in worship. So that when newcomers walk in, They are captured by a sense of wonder wonder and awe, a feeling of peace, of having come and seen. 
then it's up to each one of us to say, because our church is beautiful, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. Come and see. And then we take them to meet Jesus. Amen.